Lord Jesus, your name is above every other name. Your name is the only name by which we might be saved. Lord, this morning we talked about the rest that we have in you. Lord, Matthew eleven twenty eight. before we sang the song, what John spoke about as well, the rest. At some point in our lives, Father, we are all driven to our knees. Someone once said silence comes to every home. And it's in those moments when we turn and we look because we cannot contain our emotions in our own hearts because the pain is so great. And we look to someone to help. Lord, the only place we can fully turn and completely turn is to Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that his burden is light that he gives rest. We're so grateful. We pray that this week would be a week of rest as we visit with family or as we think about family and friends. Give us hearts that are encouraged and filled with love through the name of that's above every name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So I, I hope I don't ruin lunch for any anybody right now, but <laughs> when Barbara and I lived in Japan, we were introduced to sushi. It's an acquired taste, which I never really developed, except for a, a few kinds. But one of the most interesting kinds of sushi that you can buy in Japan is called fugu, or fugu, or Fugu, I don't know where the emphasis is on the syllable. But regardless, it is an interesting fish. And the ancient Greeks asked and answered the question, what would you get if you crossed a fish and a porcupine? You would get a fugu. That is a diodon hystrix, which is a two-toothed porcupine, of all things, known to us as the pufferfish. So now an interesting thing about the pufferfish is that it contains a poison that is a thousand times more deadly than cyanide. No known antidote at all. To buy it, to sell it, to prepare it, you have to be licensed by the state. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've always wondered, have you ever wondered that? Like these, they're, they're poison mushrooms or this or that or the other thing. Who figured that out? Who figured out that you could eat the puffer fish and not die? I, I, you know, I, when in 1974, I was 20 years old. Between 50 and 100 Japanese would die every year due to improperly prepared fugu, pufferfish. Today it's down to just three. Three a year, 
And never, by the way, if you're going there and you want to try this delicacy, which apparently people really swear by, other than just the risk factor, I mean, how would you like, okay, this food, you know, I might die if I eat this. Uh, uh, never in a commercial restaurant, okay? So the, those they know exactly what they're doing and what they need to do. But there's something else about the puffer fish that you need to know, and its name implies it. It can, in fact increase in size up to three times in a fraction of a second. Not only that, it's got long, spindly little spines that'll poke anything that, that touches it. Now, while I'm certain that the poor puffer fish is as humble as any other fish, uh, the word arrogant comes from the name that's given to the puffer fish. It means to puff up, to blow, to inflate. That's what pride is. It's to make larger than the reality suggests. And arrogance in people means that they ingest these huge amounts of self that, so that it becomes toxic to others. In fact, the puffer fish, when it's eaten by a fish out in another fish, you know, wants to eat it out in the wild, not only is it a painful experience for the fish, so they generally get left alone. Apparently, it also tastes awful. And for a lot of other fish, it kills them even as it would uh, to us. So they become distasteful, hurtful, and lethal to some. And, and that's true in the human condition, too. Arrogance in others, pride in others, is painful, foul-tasting, and lethal, certainly to uh, relationships. It's toxic, and the only antidote is the fruit of the Spirit. I love the passage in Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This thinking that if you puff yourself up, you're going to get deflated. Let the Lord do that for you. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are flea bites in comparison. It was pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads, it is pride that is the doorway, the pathway that leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, regrettably, through the centuries, through the years, many people have trivialized the word pride, where they even use it in the context of taking pride in one's work or taking pride in one's child. That is not pride in the biblical sense. In fact, I think that's quite healthy for you to do. Rather, pride refers to people who think that they do not need God, who live independently of God and faith. Having pride in yourself, in your work, in your child, not the same thing. Last week, Will skillfully told us that Malachi challenged the people to be faithful to the Lord in their personal stewardship and obedience. This went way beyond the tithe. That's not what he was 
talking about in the same in the messages before. It was a total commitment to serve the Lord. And now in this passage, this final look at the book of Malachi for us, the Lord offers his final summary before 400 years of silence. And that is that he tells the people, you are insolent, you got an attitude, and you're telling me I'm not fair. I mean, uh, to put a finer point on it, you're saying I'm unjust. So if you have your Bibles open to Malachi, please turn to Malachi uh, 3 and beginning in verse 13. We'll read, uh, we'll read the entire passage through the end of chapter 4. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold... The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers and their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, beginning in verse 13, this this word hard that's in the ESV is a very strong word. It's the kind of word that we would say when I was growing up, them, them fighting words, Right. It's the NIV uses arrogantly. The, the New American Bible says, God says, that's too much for me. I'm, I'm done. I've had it up to here. The King James Version uses the word defiant. And my former professor of Hebrew, Dr. Ross, renowned professor, translates it as insolent. When was the last time you used the word insolent in a sentence? It's a great word. That was insolent. There were a, apparently a significant number of Jews who said it is vain to serve the Lord. 
Now that we, we, you know, we've not gone through Ecclesiastes here, but I know you've read it at some point or another. Vain means empty. In other words, there's nothing there. There's no, there's no gain. There, in fact, there's no law. There's nothing. It's, it's empty. This is a useless exercise. And they go on to say that not only is service to the Lord of no value or no worth, there's no profit in keeping the law of God. There's no reward, no benefit in it. There's no pay. There's no return on their investment. You know, there are like many who today who seem to only give to the Lord in the expectation that they're going to get double or triple or some other, you know, like it's an, it is an investment, but like it's not an investment in a bank. The kind of rewards that you get from the Lord are not necessarily in kind, although they could be. But nevertheless, that's no reason to give. You know, we just talked about that last week. And as with uh, that, as with any innovations, uh, the originators of 3M sticky notes, some of you have used those today, I think, perhaps, that got started, oh, by the way, in the church. I'll explain. So the originator of the, the 3M sticky note was a, a researcher by the name of Spence. Spence Silver. And, of course, 3M wanted him to make something sticky. We want sticky. That's what they wanted. We want sticky. And he says, I wonder if I kind of went the opposite direction what I would get. So he came up with this sticky that didn't stick. Well, I mean, it did stick, but like you could stick two pieces of paper together and pull them apart, and there would be no residue left behind. You could rub the, your finger over the paper. It would be clean. It was an amazing thing. And he took it up to the uh, head office up there, and he said, I found this amazing adhesive. We need to do something with it. <laughs> Three Go away. You bother me. We want sticky stuff. We don't want anything like this with a lighter touch. And so it lay fallow, I mean, seriously, for years, until another fellow by the name of Arthur, Arthur Fry. Now, Arthur Fry was another researcher in the 3M company, but he also sang in the choir. And in the choir, they had a choir director who absolutely, you will not use a paper clip on this music. You're going to ruin my music. You will not use tape on my music. You will not write on my music. So, obviously a good choir, right? So anyway, so what happened was he remembered. I mean, it was like you folded, you spindled, you know, you mutilated whatever pieces of paper to know where you go next. Because not all music is the next page. Those of you singing a choir, you know this. And so what happens up there is you're singing and these snowflakes are coming down from your book. Landing on the floor. How distressing and disturbing is that? So he remembered his friend, Spence, and he said, hmm, I wonder if that would work. And so they got together, and in no time at all, they had some stuff for his hymnals. And that's where it was used. It was used in the hymnals. And oh, by the way, the canary yellow, the only reason it's canary yellow, the original, is because that's the only ream of paper <laughs> that they could find and not have to pay for, right? You know, so they, it, was, it was just there, and they used it, and it came to enormous profit, 
huge, huge profit. For years, 3M said there's no value, there's no profit, this adhesive is useless, it's worthless, and I'll bet there's not a single, I won't bet, I would bet if I did, there's not a single person in here who, who has not used a post-it note and or that adhesive on some other form of thing. In the same way, we see this here. These people said there's no value in serving the Lord. There's no profit, even though this vast treasure that they would receive in this life and the life to come laid directly before him. But that wasn't the most of the insolent statements that they made, no. The ancient Jews, obviously, as we all are, are concerned about justice. And they were saying, God, you are unjust. They claimed that the reality of God's justice was the opposite. They claimed that it was the arrogant, the scripture said, the arrogant who were blessed by God and that the wicked prospered and that they even put God to the test and escaped. In other words, God, you're either unjust, you don't care, or you're too weak to do anything uh, to stop them. And so you don't even make why should I serve you when you don't even make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked? I mean, this David said the same thing. So this isn't a new argument or a new concern when you see the wicked prosper. Apparently the, the Zodiac killer uh, died in 2018 and he lived to a ripe old age. What's up with that? So if you believe that God's unjust, that's another argument that you would have to say, look, the good die young, the wicked live, and they, they prosper. And this, this, that's where God says, yeah, no, you know what? That's too much. That's too much. You're insolent. They complain that God promised to bless the obedient, but he only blessed the wicked. Now, these incredibly disrespectful words against God are so disrespectful that I'm inclined to believe that these Jews were actually unbelieving Jews. I, I, I can't imagine the believing heart and mind, those who feared the Lord, would say such things. And in fact, we have a little clue there because it says immediately after that, the ones who feared the Lord had a discussion together and they reflected on the fact that God remembers those who fear him. I love verses like these. I hope you do, too. I mean, I'm immediately when I when I read the, the verse that there's a book of remembrance and that God put the people his possession, uh, our lives into this this book. My my heart and my mind's immediately drawn to Psalm fifty six eight, where we're told that God keeps our tears in a in a bottle. And unlike those who were speaking harshly against God about uselessness of our service to Him, the faithful knows this that every tear 
that they have ever shed has not been futile. So often, when we are in our deepest despair, we feel the deepest distance from God. He's not there, but he is there. He's with us. He knows each one of us intimately, and every tear that we shed has meaning for him. He remembers our sorrow. As we go on through this text, we find, too, that in addition to this remembrance, which I'll come back to in just a little bit, in the end, instead of fire, which we're all aware of, what is it that he has reserved for us? In Revelation, we're told that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I mean, and just so in this text, the Lord has listened. He listened to these faithful ones who got together, who disagreed with those statements, and the Lord put them in a scroll or a book of remembrance where he could remember. Now, someone might say, yeah, you know, John, you're stretching that a little too far. God's God. He knows everything. He never forgets anything. Agreed. But the point in the Hebrew word for remember has nothing to do with a cognitive remembrance. It's not what it's talking about. This word is not recall. Obviously, God remembers everything. And it has to do more with his desire and his willingness to act on our behalf based upon the covenant that we have with him. They had a covenant with him. We saved by Jesus Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, have a opportunity for when he remembers us. The basis of that is Jesus Christ, ultimately our salvation. I mean, take a moment to pause and think about that. I mean, we think about things that we're thankful for, especially during this week, but even now, allow that particular truth to penetrate your heart. Your faith, the faith that you have, your love, your service, those labors of love that you think no one knows about or ever will, those wakeful and sleepless nights, those moments in the emergency room, the concerns that we have about our health or our finances, our relationships, he knows He remembers. He does not forget. You are not forgotten. We're not simply talking about blessings or this notion that God does not forget in the sense that he does act on our behalf. Uh, There's something clear, too, here in Malachi that's saying there's something about this that's important for the end time, for the end of all time, and that is this. God will not only secure 
the believers as his own people here and now as he has with each one of us who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. But he will also spare them from judgment. I mean, in the books, uh, there are other books of remembrance. You remember uh, some of those in Revelation twenty twelve. The books are opened. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. He will spare his uh, possession. He not only remembers us now, he will remember us in judgment. That These people who rejected God in that day and in this day are not part of his possession. Those who accept and who trust him are part of his possession. And that is on that day, the day of judgment, God will remember his people. God will save his people from that final judgment. And that's what our security is based on, the fact that we belong to him. Our, we are his, as this text says, possession. And when he does judge, everyone will see the difference between the righteous and the wicked. I mean, the, the doubters claim there was no difference. Because they had this false expectation of having some simple payback. How shallow. That they were going to get something from what they were doing. I mean, don't read the book of Jeremiah if you think that that's the way the Lord always operates. Because the Lord does that which the Lord does. And all that we can say is with Job. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, there are other instances where they talk about the day of the Lord, and and sometimes that can be used with any sort of divine uh, intervention. But the great day of the Lord, that refers to the second coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead and will establish a universal reign of righteousness. And all the prophecy that you look at, in the, especially in the minor prophets and, and forward, they're all, they're all funneling to that great day. There's, there's one other little interesting thing in here that I want us to look at for just a, a moment, and that's John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist declared that the wicked would be burned with unquenchable chaff. And, and those who were to be judged were the proud and, and the wicked. I, I think those are probably synonyms uh, for John. But the righteous look forward to salvation. They look forward to the coming of the Messiah. Certainly when John was preaching, that's what he was preaching, preparing the way of uh, the Lord, the Messiah. To them, and if you love poetry at all, uh, you will have taken note of this uh, verse. I'm not sure which one it was, but it was in the text that we just read in Malachi. To them, to, to us, the sun 
of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. I mean, the, the coming Messiah is like the rising uh, sun whose who's rays, if you've ever seen a sun rise as it, as it does this, they just, it, they just immediately come across the land and they, they, it covers everything. And what the scripture says is that this qualified sun that rises will spread righteousness across the world. And as these messianic prophecies are foretold, I mean, Zechariah, uh, you, can, you can go through them. The only place where I would uh, stop right now for even a second is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And he referred to the Messiah in his song in Luke chapter 1, as the sunrise. So he knew. He knew what was he knew what was going on. So therefore, what how does this come down to us? Therefore, he tells them in verse uh, four of uh, chapter four, obey the word of God. I mean, God remembers. Therefore, Malachi calls upon the righteous to remember. Remember what? Remember the law of Moses given at Sinai. I mean, that's the foundation of uh, Scripture. Is Everything is based on that in terms of that's the earliest Scripture that we have, and one could not claim to be a faithful Jew and deny, disregard, disrespect the Torah. You could not do so. You couldn't do that and claim to be faithful. And of course, today, I mean, we have the full scripture. We have the scripture. Jesus did not come to destroy that, but to fulfill it. The Old Testament, the law. And so one cannot disregard the Bible and claim to be faithful. And I see that more and more these days. It's it's disturbing where the Bible is no longer becoming the final authority to what is taught in morals and ethics and truth. And so we see here, coming back to John, that God gives the promise that Elijah will come and unite the people of the covenant in verses 5 and 6. Before that great and terrible day of the Lord, and we know that from the New Testament that this messenger of Malachi Chapter 3, verse 1, is John the Baptist. But a lot of folks in the New Testament thought that John the Baptist was also Elijah. In fact, they would ask him, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? And and John, uh, he tells us very clearly, I am not Elijah, John 21 and 23. Now, in Matthew eleven thirteen, Jesus says, and very interesting statement. If you receive it, this was Elijah who was to come. Now, it's a fascinating and an amazing statement. And it's one of those where one of these questions, and when you get into the hypotheticals, you get into trouble. So maybe I'll get into a little trouble. But one of the questions always has been when Jesus Christ came 
and offered the kingdom to the Jews, was that a legitimate offer? That's a very, for those of you who are theologically minded, you can, you know, you, you can wrestle with that. But what we have is a contingency. If you receive it, if you receive it, this was the Elijah who was to come. That's an amazing statement for me. The offer of the kingdom, just to let you know where I come from, the offer of the kingdom to the Jews was legitimate. It was a legit. Had they repented and had they accepted Messiah in his coming, then we, it would have been different. But of course, God knew all of this. But John then was not the Elijah to come. He says he wasn't, and Jesus only gives a contingency, a conditional statement regarding him. But because he certainly didn't do what Malachi 4 says, to turn the people right, just, uh, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. As we learned in our study of Revelation, many will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah over the ages. But after they're long gone, just on the eve of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory, and Elijah will appear, and he will bring people back to God. Today, those who do not think God is ruling in fairness, they choose to rebel against him by refusing to trust Jesus Christ, by not even just refusing to trust Jesus Christ, by actively rejecting him. They don't want any part of it. They think that it's nonsense. They think it is of no value, no profit whatsoever. They're going to have a real awakening in the future to a very sad future. For when the Lord comes, he will separate the righteous from the wicked. And it's going to be such a dramatic moment. It will divide eternity for all time for those who trust and those who do not trust. But before he comes, he sends people in the spirit of Elijah. Wouldn't that be something to be said of you that you were here in the spirit of Elijah? What a wonderful thing to be said of, of you that you wanted to be a person to bring about harmony and righteousness in your family, in your community, in your nation. The word of God is full of instructions on what we're to do as we watch and pray for his appearance. And those living in the hope of the second coming that's part of our preparation for it. You and I must be doing the work of the prophets. We must be warning people of the evil devastation to come to them. We must encourage them that their service, and I encourage you, and I understand seasons in life. I understand service. 
I understand that sometimes you're able to serve more, sometimes less. Do you know that does not change your heart of service? It just speaks of your season of life for a moment. And that moment can change. And whatever it is that you're doing, whether you think that it's large or whether you think that it's small, it is of tremendous value to our Lord. And he will not forget. Our service to God is not in vain. It is not without profit. And it is above all things in service to a God who is righteous and who is just. And I trust that this week, in, as we give thanks, that one of the things that you will be truly thankful for is your salvation in Jesus Christ. And if that's not something you're familiar with, whether online or whether in here, Jesus Christ did something for you that you could not do for yourself. He gave his life on a cross. He died. He was buried. He rose again. And in that, and in believing that, you too can have life this very day. Father, we know that our service to you, in whatever form it takes, is not vain. It is not empty. And whether we see the evidences or not, they are there. The transformation that must take place is in our own heart, in our own mind, seeing what it is that you are doing and joining in that. We thank you for the book of Malachi. We thank you for the lessons that it has taught us and we pray that each one will have brought us just a little closer to you given us just a little bit more instruction understanding meaning how to walk in a way that pleases you we thank you and we praise you for all that you have done and all who you are Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.